Welcome to Coffee House Shots for Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. Except today there is no politics. Parliament's been suspended as it will be for the next week while the nation mourns the Queen. So instead we're going to play a discussion we had earlier from Charles Moore, our former editor, James Forsyth, the political editor, and Freddie Gray about the Queen and her legacy. Charles, it's been um, 70 years uh, since a British monarch died. Um, I appreciate it's uh, before your time, 1952, but um, perhaps using your historical knowledge, you could give us a sense of what a different country Britain was and the different position the monarchy was in uh, when Queen Elizabeth II acceded to the throne. Um, I think it's a bit misrepresented what happened then. Um, People now think of it as incredibly old-fashioned, which in a way it was, but in another way it wasn't, because what it was was the recovery of confidence um, and uh, ceremony after the horrors of the Second World War. And it was, of course, it was a very young monarch. So people were very excited in, it was also the first television event, um, big public event on television in British, British history. And so it seemed very new, though its ritual was very ancient. Um, and the fact that a, a very young woman had become queen, and in fact, become queen while having a holiday in uh, Kenya, um, was also part of this, this is a new thing. Hard to think of that now. It now seems almost prehistoric when you watch the, um, the, the, the uh, film, but um, it, it wasn't like that at the time. Yes, the, the televisual uh, aspect of her reign is very important, isn't it? It's, it, it's hard to uh, think of Elizabeth II without thinking about television. And, and sort of, I, th- I think British people actually started to buy television so that they could see the Queen, is that not right? That is correct, yes, and not many people had television still, so enormous sums of people. I remember Frank Johnson, the, the Spectator's former editor, who was an East End boy, telling me about how they all crowded into his uncle's house in Shoreditch, and sort of 40 of them all sat around watching, and they could hardly see anything because a tiny, tiny screen for a film, but terribly exciting to, to watch it. James, um, there's already uh, some anxiety that uh, the Queen, who was this great unifying figure for the Union, uh, is now gone, uh, and that the glue that bound the nation together, if you like, uh, is 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 now has now vanished. Um, do you think unionists are right to be concerned about the future? Uh, the Queen obviously uh, acted as a kind of great unifying force, and I think the mourning for her. Uh, will will be testament to that, but I do think the unifying figure of the monarchy will will remain in in, in in a different way in a different form. I think I think I think for King Charles it will be different for, than it than it was for her, but I think I think he has uh, he comes to the crown kind of relatively late in life. He's in his seventies, and I think he will he will bring uh, that experience, and I think he is wise enough to know that as king, he will have to be, uh, to be more private about his opinions than he was as Prince of Wales. Charles, are we about to see that, um, because of course everybody talks about how Queen Elizabeth represented continuity, are we about to see that monarchy itself represents continuity, even more so perhaps than the late Queen? I think so. I think um, you shouldn't uh, talk of the Queen as, um, as if it's a sort of one-off special thing. And she would have been the last person in the world who would have wanted to see it that way. The point of the monarchical system is that, that it's dynastic and all its efforts go into perpetuating itself. Um, uh, it has no other means of um, survival. 
And the queen did that triumphantly, um, both in terms of breeding, so that we've got this line stretching out before us for you know, what might be 100 years, never happened before, um, but also in terms of making the right provision. So for example, she was very careful to ensure quite recently actually that the then Prince of Wales would become head of the Commonwealth when she died. Um, she carefully worked all that out. So I don't expect a crisis of monarchy. Um, uh, what I do think is, will obviously be difficult in the short term is that our whole way of thinking about British monarchy has been very governed by this reign because it's so successful and so long. And um, some rethinking will require, I'll just make one point there, which is that now that the queen is dead, the person with the, by far the longest experience of public life anywhere in the whole of the world is the new king. He has been, um, he's been an active figure on the international stage for more than 50 years. James, what do you think was the most uh, precarious moment perhaps of Elizabeth's reign? Because th th there were moments of crisis, crisis crises uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, what, where, do you, where do you think she had her most difficult period as monarch? I, I think there are two. Uh, 1992, the Annas Horribilis, and then 1997, after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, when I, I think the Queen, in her desire to, to protect, understandable desire to protect her own family, kind of misread the public mood. And, uh, and I, think, I think in some ways... That was, that was a very difficult moment for the monarchy, given how emotionally volatile the country was at, at that point. But I think what stands out to me is that in this 70-year reign, the, the, the longest in British history, you know, those, uh, those, those mistakes are, are so much smaller than the equivalent mistakes made by Queen Victoria, when you think about the, the, the bedchamber crisis or, um, or Queen Victoria's withdrawal from public life after Prince Albert's death. Charles, do you, do you think um, after the death of Diana and obviously there was a little tumult there uh, that uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, and the monarchy, in fact, came out stronger because of it? I do think so. I think it was, um, it was difficult, but really the, the profound difficulty lasted for five days. It was from the princess died on a Sunday, the trouble began on a Monday and the Queen calmed it by her broadcast on the Friday and the funeral was the following day. And um, actually, um, the Queen was perhaps slow off the mark in seeing exactly how you would need to deal with this question. But when she did see, in this very, very short period, she got it absolutely right on that Friday with her broadcast and brought the nation together in time for the funeral. So I don't think even if, if she got that wrong, it would have been ultimately disastrous. And I certainly didn't agree with the people at the time or later who say that it threatened the monarchy. But I think um, it, was, it was difficult. It did show up some real problems um, uh, and it was the nearest we ever got to quite strong public criticism of the Queen. Um, all those things were important but all those things were overcome. Charles I wanted to end by asking you about the Queen's faith uh, because she was uh, a devout Christian in an age that uh, is often called post-Christian. Um, how important do you think was religion to the way the Queen looked at the world and the way the Queen uh, behaved as a monarch? I think it was absolutely central to the Queen's approach, and not only because she took her role as Supreme Governor of the Church of England very seriously, but for more profound uh, reasons. Um, that was her faith. Um, and she had a particular type of Christian faith, which is very acquired, but is all pervading. So 
each day um, she prayed every night and she each Sunday she attended church. Um, and she was very much of that school, I think, which doesn't want to talk about it, but does want to do it um, to practice more than to preach. Whenever she did preach, which was very, very slightly at her Christmas broadcast, the name of Jesus would usually come in and the Christmas message in some way would always come in, a Christian message at Christmas. And um, I think it explains the way she did so much by stealth. You have to think, in order to understand the Queen, you have to understand uh, the things you didn't quite see or that she didn't quite say as much as the things that she did. And that's very characteristic of a certain humble Christianity, which is you're not showing off you don't matter as yourself. It's your duty to God and your neighbor that matters. And that's, that gives a life, lifelong uh, sustaining power. Do you think her religious instincts were perhaps more low church than uh, you might expect from a, a head of the church? Um, maybe, but I, I think it's very important that the Queen didn't have, was absolutely uninterested in religious parties and factions. In fact, um, you know, would have regarded them as a very, very bad news. And um, this also explains the attitude to other faiths um, and other denominations of Christianity. Um, nobody could ever, she was a, a strong, quite old fashioned Protestant Anglican, but nobody could ever say she was trying to sort of advance that in some argumentative or disparaging way against anyone else. And she famously formulated the doctrine that the Church of England could be a sort of umbrella for other denominations and other faiths. And I, that was very clearly recognized by Jews and Muslims and so on. Um, she, she understood that um, if she was going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, which in her quiet way she was trying to do, uh, she must always show love and respect for people, not be disapproving of them. James, we now have uh, a new king um, and Britain will now have to think about the role of the Church of England um, in uh, public life, uh, do you think we will now see a monarchy that has to concentrate more on its on the religious aspect and and, and the sacred aspects of it? I, I think the coronation will, will, will obviously bring those things to the fore. Uh, I, I think, though, that uh, as Charles said, I think that, I think the Church of England has is the Church of the country, and I think that I think the royal family has done a very astute job of you know. But for all the divisions within the Anglican Communion on all sorts of issues, the royal family has done a very astute job of, of, of avoiding getting drawn into those. Charles, you knew the Queen a little bit. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about her character, what she was really like and so on. But I wonder if you could tell us, uh, is there an aspect of her personality that you think the public uh, misses? Well, no, I think, I think her integrity was apparent. What I think it perhaps needs emphasis, which I, I find in a way the most extraordinary thing about it, is her absolute lack of vanity. Um, here you are um, all your life, and certainly from when you knew you were going to be uh, at, at the throne, people have been flattering you every single day. So she probably has received flattery for 96 years. I don't think one little bit of it went to, to her head. I don't think she ever thought, aren't I clever, aren't I brilliant, gosh, didn't I do well, aren't I beautiful, etc. None of, I really, none of those things at all. She had an inner dignity and therefore an inner self-confidence, but literally no vanity. And that's the most extraordinary achievement. I think, I can't think of anyone famous who's like that. Charles, James, thank you very much indeed.